Well, here we are, turning your Bibles, and we are in Exodus chapter 21, which means we are not in the Ten Commandments anymore, but we are in many more commandments that unfold and follow for the nation of Israel here. But as we turn the page on Exodus 20 and those Ten Commandments, we now encounter how those big principles of the Ten Commandments get lived out in the everyday life of the ancient Israelite. That's what really these laws are all about. But uh, that means there's a special challenge for us as Christians for this is all about really the everyday life of an old covenant Israelite living in a very old and ancient context that isn't ours. So you're going to find fewer of the, the, the large sweeping thou shall nots, and what follows really the next three chapters are a bunch of, well, if this happens, then you should do this. And this is the particular applications of those big ten laws and rules, but specialized for Israel in their particular ancient context. So even as our text begins in verse 1, we find this. It reads, Now these are the rules or the judgments that you shall set before them. So again, the Ten Commandments came as these sweeping ten like ethics for life. And then what unfollows the next three chapters is how, okay, Israel, this is what it needs to look like for you to live out those Ten Commandments. Here's what it needs to look like for you in the ancient Near East under this old covenant with me. Here's what it looks like for you to live out the character of God. But of course, again, this is the challenge it creates, for we are not Old Testament Israel. We're Christians under the new covenant reading this. And so our applications of really the next several chapters in Exodus, uh, they are even farther removed from when we studied the Ten Commandments over the summer. Again, we're not Israel. We're not under the Old Covenant. And most specifically to the topic of our text, at least I hope, we don't have any slaves. So that's what these verses are all about. So what are we supposed to do here? And I think many of us go, well, this isn't my Bible reading plan, Rick, where I just skip. I go from like, yeah, Exodus 20, maybe you take a stop at the, you know, the golden calf, and then you might jump to like Matthew at that point, right? <laughs> and no, we already did Matthew, so we're not going there. But that's what our efforts are about even this morning. And so really, we're going to have to dig in the text. And that means for you as the listener, let alone try this week with the Lord's help, I mean, we're going to have to work hard. We're going to have to work hard to think. You're going to have to work hard to inspect your heart. We're going to have to do some digging. Because uh, in contrast, again, the New Testament, why do we tend to go to the New Testament? It's just easier to digest. It's easier to figure out what we're supposed to do with this. Uh, you say, take a book like Colossians, and you're reading something that an apostle wrote to New Testament Christians. And so when you read a command to the Colossian church, you can go, hmm, that applies to me pretty straight on. But you go to a text like this, it's not so straight on, because it's a different context. It's a different people under a different covenant. And so that means to translate these laws in Exodus to your life, you're, we're going to have to work hard. We're going to have to do some digging. Those New Testament commands, they're like apples. You know, you can just go to the produce section, you just grab it, and then hopefully you're going to pay for it, but you can just eat it right then. Just chomp away. Yum. The Old Testament laws, they are like avocados. Or a sister told me in the foyer, no, they're more like lobsters. Like, you got to work really hard to get to the good stuff to eat this thing. And so we're going to do some digging. And what are we digging for? What are we searching for? We're searching for those underlying principles, those characteristics that translate across covenants, across cultures, across time that need to be lived out by us too. 
what, what's the underlying ethic that uh, created these commands that came to Israel in their particular context? And so that's what we got to dig to find. And I want to show you or just mention one example of this in the New Testament of t- to illustrate what I'm talking about. Because when I'm talking about, well, we need to dig and we need to sift through all the context to get to that underlying principle, like I didn't make that up. I didn't say, wow, that's basically the only way I can make this a good sermon for New Testament Christians. I'm following the Apostle Paul, and this was his approach as he looked at the Old Testament law. He said, what's the underlying principle that God's concerned about that we need to live out? So, for example, just to give you one, twice in Paul's writings, he goes to these very specific laws in the opening books of the Bible to talk about why you ought to pay your pastor or to compensate your minister financially. And interestingly, the law he quotes so obviously is this one, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. I'm sure you all know it. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Of course, pay your pastor. That's what I said, isn't it? (laughs) How did that happen? Well, there's a principle here, and a far more important one than how you're to treat your oxen. Paul explains for us. This is 1 Corinthians 9. He says this, I do not say these things, that is why you should pay a minister, uh, on human authority. Does not the law say the same? And you're thinking, where does it say about pay your pastor in the Old Testament law? He says this, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul, explain that for me. Here he goes. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak certainly for our sake, he says. What's his point? God's not mainly concerned about oxen. He has some concern, but there's an underlying principle here that God is actually concerned about most of all. And so we, like an archaeologist digging for dinosaur bones, we got to uncover some of the other stuff to get to that kernel principle that, to use Paul's words, God is truly concerned about. And when we do that, this starts to have all kinds of implications on our lives. So we got to dig through the ancient Israelite context. We got to dig through their old covenant that's different than ours. And we got to come to that kernel principle that translates to our own life. And when we're looking now to finally come to our text, Exodus 21, verses 1 to 11, that's what we'll find. In summary, I'd put it this way God set you free as a Christian, He set you free from slavery, so you are set free to serve others, to serve your needy brother. See, you need to understand, and the New Testament uses this picture all the time. No matter how you came in this morning, as you came into this world, you were born a slave of sin. You were born enslaved to sin. You were born under sin's penalty. You were born under the authority of the devil, Ephesians chapter 2, dead in your sins. This is where we all came in. But if you have now looked to Christ, Christ has liberated you. He has set you free. He paid the redemption price. He set you free. He erased all of your debt. You are now free, but you are free to serve. And that's the example we see here for Israel, and that's one as Christians we'll see over and over again. So let us start to uncover that principle and look at this text. And we're going to see two aspects of what it means that we are set free, set free to serve. We, number one, we're set free to serve willingly, verses 1 to 6. Set free to serve willingly, or you might say sincerely. We have been liberated from the bondage of sin that we can dedicate ourselves to Actually serve people. Another way to say it, you've been set free from your own concerns, taking and looking after your own soul, because Christ already did that, so you can lift your eyes up and you can look out for the soul of others. Now we uncover this adage, actually curiously of all places, that we've been set free to serve willingly. 
We see it in verses 1 to 6 as we look through the framework of, curiously enough, slavery. Because as you look at our section down to verses 5 and 6, that's exactly what you see. You see a slave who's so overcome by the generosity of his master, what is he going to do? He's going to dedicate his whole life to serve his master. And so that'll certainly be a picture here of what we are called to do with God and others. But furthermore, God wants us to learn from not only the slave, but he wants us to learn too from the master and the generosity of the master and what he has done that we need to replicate this as well. So we're, God wants us to learn from both the slave and learn both from the master about what it means for us. And in summary, these first six verses, it means we give ourselves to serve willingly and sincerely to others. Now, this has been a challenging sermon and text to work through because there's so many preliminaries that I feel like we need to address and look at and put out of the way to, to, clear, to clear the way to understand this text, how it came to God's people originally. That is, we have so much baggage, we have so many ways to think through our own world that when we read this text, we're going to naturally read a lot of things into it that aren't there. And the first one we need to clarify to really understand what's going on in this text is that you need to understand when it's talking about, as we see, verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave and talks about slavery and servitude, the slavery of the ancient Near East was fundamentally different than the slavery you're most familiar with, at least in your American history class. The kind of slavery here in, in Exodus, God's regulating this kind of slavery. It's much different than the slavery of Africans that were captured, kidnapped, and forcefully subjugated for generations here in the United States. The slavery you're talking about in the first part of this chapter is not the same or any real vision of the slavery you might think, again, from what generated the Civil War. That's really important to recognize and clear out on the table because otherwise you're going to read into the Bible your notions of American slavery into this text, the horrors that are there, and I think then you'll make little sense of, well, how and why would God merely tolerate or regulate such atrocities of human freedoms? Well, because there weren't the same kind of atrocities of human freedoms talked about here in the first part of Exodus 21. Actually, if you would just maybe turn the page or bump your eyes down to Exodus 21 verse 16, and you'll find a verse that actually addresses the horrors and atrocities of American slavery. Another way to say it is this. I can tell you that, it, that not peculiar institution, but that wicked one, of the slave of the enslavement of Africans and brought to this country, that it's horrible, it is horrible, it is evil. I can tell you that on the basis of this verse in the Old Testament. Let's look at it. Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, so that's one, and anyone found in possession of him, that's two, and that's American slavery shall be put to death. That's what God thinks about American slavery of the past. He thoroughly condemns it. It's called man-stealing. It's kidnapping for an enslavement, which was the foundation for nearly all, if not all, that made up again, not the peculiar institution, but the horrific and wicked one of the enslavement of Africans. It was evil. And God's law and God would not tolerate it. You need to realize that then, 
as then we keep reading in our text, in this context, well, how would you think about God so condemns what we might call that American version of slavery that he then can merely regulate some other form of slavery in our text? How can that happen? Shouldn't he just abolish all slavery just out of the gate? Well, evidently, those two forms of slavery, again, American historic slavery and this historic slavery of the ancient Near East, they are fundamentally different. And just let me list for you two ways that come out in our text pretty clearly. But you'll see here in the first place, this ancient Near Eastern slavery, it was temporary. It was temporary. It wasn't to last for life. And the other component about the slavery of the ancient Near East, it was voluntary. You weren't kidnapped. You weren't taken into slavery against your will. The slaves, in a way, signed up for this. And I think the closest analogy, I saw some commentators reference this, the closest analogy you might find would be like many, many in this room who've signed up for military service. You sign up for a certain term of deployment, so many years, in a way that's in some ways very analogous to the ancient Near Eastern slavery being regulated here. Now, then you're going to ask, why would anyone sign up for this? Well, again, you can ask our veterans, but why would anyone sign up to be a slave here in Exodus? Usually, the circumstance that prompted this was the slave, or to-be slave, found himself in just a insurmountable financial debts that he had no way to pay out of. And so he had nothing left to sell, nothing left to pay. All he had to sell was himself to fulfill the debt. But that sets the context for what's going on here. Your neighbor is broke. He's financially destitute. He's in a very then vulnerable situation. And so God's word steps in for the people of Israel to regulate this relationship, to protect the slave and the master, to protect them both financially. Again, in our modern context, you're in financial problems. If it's gone really bad, you might just declare bankruptcy or something like this. You can't do that in this ancient context. But what you could do is you could work as a slave to settle your debts. But again, the word's going to come and regulate what this looks like to protect against abuse. And the first way is that it's going to set term limits on this. So look at verse 2 then of Exodus 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And note this. And in the seventh, he shall go out free, and then to be emphatic about it, for nothing. So the point is, with he shall go out free for nothing, he goes out free. No strings attached. There's no fine print. There's no, oh, but that was a really big debt you owed me in the typical six years. That doesn't cover it. So let's serve for six more or 14 more. Or let's do this. Nope. It's just six and done. Release. Freedom. It's full debt forgiveness with nothing else hanging over this guy's head. Again, isn't this a beautiful picture of the gospel? Except the gospel is even better. Because you don't sign up to serve God for six years and then he forgives you. He just forgives you all of it right away. That's the glory and the freedom of the gospel and what he, Christ offers us. So I don't know, maybe you came in with a lot of spiritual debts weighing you down this morning. In Christ, there's the one place at the cross, those are all gone. We'll talk more about that picture. But here it is, you serve for six years as a slave, and no matter how great your debt is, no matter how enormous it was, no matter how many lifetimes it would take you to pay it back, six years you paid, and it's all gone. 
Now, that sounds great for the slave. His debt's gone. What about the master? Do you think masters would be quite so inclined to let go of a good worker? I mean, maybe you're, you're that good worker in your own office, and go talk to your supervisor about your thinking about leaving. Actually, that might be a good idea, because maybe you can renegotiate your contract, right? But the point is, people don't want to lose good workers. And if you've got a good worker, I, I don't want him to work six years. I want him to work 60, you know, to help my farm or my business, whatever. Let alone, I'm going to have to forgive all that debt. I'm going to be out all those finances. So how should I think about this? And there's one more component that we need to set out to this whole context of really the whole law of Israel that we failed to mention this morning. And it's part of the context that should help the master be able to loosen his grip a little bit and let go of this slave and his debts. But you've got to go back to the beginning to the giving of the law before he gave the Ten Commandments. Because do you remember how the Ten Commandments began? And I don't mean the first commandment. I mean what he said before he gave the first commandment. You remember what he said? If you don't, it's probably not far in your Bible. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words saying, You shall have no other gods before me. No, no, no. I skipped a verse, didn't I? you got to look at verse 2 first. Before he can ever command them to do anything, this is what he tells them and reminds them. He says, I am the Lord your God, already true, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, already true, and I already brought you out of the house of slavery. That's the context you need to hear all of these laws, the ten and all that follow. You hear it in a context of, you were once a slave yourself and I set you free. That's what the master needs to hear. He needs to hear, you've been rescued, you've already been redeemed, you've already been let go, you've already been saved, and because of that, can you not show such grace to your slave? Can you not do the same? I forgave your debt freely and rescued you out of the most powerful nation on the planet. If you remember that grace I showed you, can't you just show your servant a little? That's the word that comes to the master that would help him let it go. But to return to our text in chapter 21, that does not mean, however, that the owner is going to be wholly cheated either. Uh, The word isn't, well, owner, you just need to suck it up, and I don't care how much you lose, I don't care how big the debt was. No, that's not even God's concern here. It's going to be fair for the master, and it's fair for him as we uncover what's said here in verses 3 and 4. Look at this. So the slave gets full debt forgiveness. What does the master get? Well, he gets equitable treatment in this way. Look, verses 3. If he comes in single, that is the slave, he should go out single. So he's going to come in and go out the same. Same if he's married. If you came in with a wife, then he's going to go out with that wife. No issue. The the master has no claim on the wife. But, verse 4, if his master gives the slave, a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall not go, excuse me, and he shall go out alone. Again, this text is all about how you release your slave. And I'm sure, as any of us reading this, at first we are like, this does not sound fair, and this sounds bad. I don't care if you're trying to be fair to the master. Now you're splitting up families? 
This does not seem like an equitable thing. Well, it's just, frankly, not that simple. And again, we are separated by thousands of years of a context that we're not as familiar with. But yes, these laws, verses 3 and 4, this is about making it fair for the master. Because here's the thing. If that master acquired a slave girl that he intended to then give to another slave for them to marry, what it cost him to get that slave girl was enormous. He made a huge financial outlay to benefit his other slave with this wife. In other words, in ancient cultures, dowries were a real thing, and they were really, really expensive. And it's a benefit the slaves seem to enjoy, such that if then the slave, when he goes out, if he goes out with the wife and all the kids, that owner is out a huge amount of money that he was entitled to, he had a right to, as much as he did the debt. So that wasn't fair to him. And yet, I think we're still thinking, yeah, but Rick, we're talking about splitting up families. That's horrible. True. But it is assumed he's going to go out now that he's free. He can earn his own money and he can redeem and buy out his wife and children from the slavery. Or he can wait for her to finish her contract of those six years before then she can go out. Or the slave had another alternative. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6. Let's see this. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And just to note a couple things here, the slave, he's come to love his master. And his wife and kids, of course. But, but he is dedicated to his master. He loves him so. And why is this? A couple of reasons. One, understand that the, most slaves of this kind, they were house servants, really. They lived in the household with the master and his family. They were really treated like fellow family members. Don't think of a slave far off on a plantation. This is a slave that lived in the home and served the family directly. Such that, as you see, as he commits to God and then to the man, he's to go back. He goes and takes this oath before God, right? The slave does. And then in the middle of verse 6, he's brought back to the house, and that's where his, uh, he gets his ears pierced uh, at the door with an awl. Okay? Don't have my ears pierced. I got a nine-year-old daughter. I assume that day's coming. But uh, that sounds horrible. This sounds way bad. You know, I don't know what, I, I'm thinking like a tent spike in the ear. Like, that just, man, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. But it's interesting, why is his ear being pierced at the door jam, basically? Because he's committing to serve that house and household. He's becoming part of the family as he's being pierced. Now, the other issue is, why would anyone ever do that? I mean, you know, we're all about freedom, you know. Why would anyone do this? What is the slave doing? He's saying, I have it so good with my master, why would I ever go anywhere else? I mean, where did his freedom get him? Basically dead. He had nothing. He was starving to death. He was under serious debt. And now that he's with his master... He's got a wife and kids and he's fully provided for. He's got a job. He's got industry. And he's so thankful. That kind of gratitude, it just says, 
Of course I want to serve my master. Where else can I go? He saved my life. And of course, isn't this a beautiful picture of the gospel? Where were we apart from our master, our Lord Jesus Christ? And then what he's done for us? Such that he can come back and ask us, oh, do you want to leave like the rest? And what do we want to tell him? Where else can we go? You have the words of life. That's the picture here of this slave. He doesn't want to leave his master. But understand, it is his choice. He's glad to stay. He chooses to stay. And so he does. Now, what do we take from all of this? What does any of this mean for the Christian life? Well, there's plenty of implications here. But let me suggest just two ways in particular. Number one, I think this means for us as Christians, this underlying principle, we need to be quick to let go. You need to be quick to let go, and namely of two things. You need to be quick to let go of your finances, your money, your debts, so to speak, or those that debts that people owe you. And you need to be quick to let go of grudges, of sins done against you. You need to be quick to let go of your money. In other words, this pattern of the, the master fully forgiving the financial debts of his servant It reminds us of how gracious our God's been with us for our soul before God. And that becomes a pattern for even our own literal generosity. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gift that he is, that though he was rich, he yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave himself, made him the poorest of all, that we might become rich being blessed with all the blessings in the heavenly places, Paul tells us. And it's that example of redemption, one becoming poor, that we might be rich. Paul then says, that's a spiritual principle, but it has physical implications. And he says, shouldn't you be generous too to the Christians in Jerusalem? And just like the Israelite owner, right, who might initially begrudge the idea of, I don't really want to let him go, I don't want to let his debt go, But then we remember, well, how had God first rescued me? How has he first redeemed me? Reflecting on that makes it a little easier to let go. To let go of your money that you wouldn't hold it so tight. Especially if your master wants to use it some other way. So to that, just reflecting on your life for a moment. If you had to categorize it, you know, there's a watershed, two signs. Are you more about giving or hoarding? What defines your life? Giving, generosity, hoarding, finding security and riches. What does either characteristic say about your gospel? Not only should we be quick to let go of our money, but we should be quick to let go of our grudges. The relational debts that others owe us. You know, I just find it so interesting. In the Lord's Prayer, here's how it goes, right? That he prays it this way. And forgive us our debts, in Matthew 6, as we forgive our debtors. Luke, in his rendering, uh, it uses trespasses. But that's it. We want forgiveness. We want mercy from God for the debts of our sin. And we've got it in Christ, and so now, by implication, we should be quick to forgive others like we've been forgiven. It's just that simple. Don't keep the record of wrongs. Don't keep replaying in your mind the wrongs that others have done to you. 
It's not how Christ treats you. Actually, the miracle of the gospel is, right, the new covenant, he remembers your sins no more. That is nuts. The all-knowing God doesn't remember your sin because of Jesus Christ. And he's called us, forget other people's sins against you. Again, if the Lord would forgive such an incalculable debt of yours against his holiness, how can you cling to those old offenses and grudges and have bitterness welling up in your heart? Now, Jesus used this analogy, I think it's Matthew 18, of that unforgiving servant, right? Let's not be that guy. Such postures, bitterness, grudges, speak against what the gospel has done and against, as we see here, the principles even of the law. We should be quick to forgive. Furthermore, so we need to be quick to let go, but another implication of this whole thing is that it's right to be devoted to one who has shown you such favor. It's right to be devoted to one that's so generous to you. And that becomes an implication for masters and slaves, no matter who you are. So as you turn to the New Testament, for example, like in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul has commands for masters and he has commands for slaves. And basically he said, don't be thinking about yourself. Don't be thinking about the other party. Just think about your Lord Jesus because that's whom you're serving. So that's why we hear this. We hear this. This is Ephesians 6 verse 5. Bond servants, or more literally, it's just slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. That's who you're focused on. You're focused on your Redeemer. And he's put you in this station, so you're going to serve him, not your master, but your heavenly master. He goes on, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. That's what we're after, doing the will of our master in heaven. But even the same goes for Masters, they are to serve their master in heaven. As we hear this in verse 9 of Ephesians 6, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Our master in heaven is the one we're dedicated to, our Redeemer who's been so good to us. He's been gracious to you. He has served you, namely, so you can serve others. So no matter how many children or workers or employees are under you, you are all ultimately under your king. And out of your love and commitment to him, you set your focus on him, wherever he places you. I suppose this is why the New Testament doesn't blush or hesitate to call Christians slaves of Christ. Because we are rescued, but now most willing servants of this Redeemer and King. We love him, so we love to serve him, and he's called us to serve. Let's do that. Second, we've been set free not to just willingly serve, but to provide protection, to be a provider, to provide protection and help to those in need. And so as we're back in Exodus 21, we're looking now at verses 7 through 11, and we see this need to protect, to provide for the needy, namely those who can't provide for themselves. And That's going to be shown to us through this category of those who really can't provide for themselves, and it's female slaves. That is, if we're thinking that men slaves were in a disadvantaged position, susceptible to abuse, 
Well, that risk is only increased many more times for female slaves. Because you understand in this ancient context for females, you had no way to provide for yourself. If you didn't have a man and you didn't have land that he could produce, uh, you really had no way to provide. That's why you had the likes of, of Ruth going out and finding a, a land and provision because she needed it. Anyway, let's look at verse 7. We see the difference that needs to be made between the men and the women. He says this, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. You can't treat the women slaves just like you do the men slaves, like I said, because of what we're talking about with provision. Now, I skipped over the first part of the verse, and I think we're thinking, yeah, you did. What does that say? When a man sells his daughter as a slave, and I think we're immediately thinking, what kind of creep sells his daughter as a slave? But again, we are separated by thousands of years of ancient context to take you back to this one. You're dealing in a situation where this father, he is in a financially impossible situation, whatever it is. That is, you're not to think, in this case, that the dad is like, oh good, I get to sell my daughter and get her out of here. I can't wait to see how much I get for her. That's not the idea at all. What, what did he see? The dad saw, out of his impoverished state, that this was one way to give his daughter a better life, far better than he could provide for her. Because as we keep reading, she's not merely coming as into a servant into the house, but she's being given over in marriage into this family, either the master or the master's son. And so maybe now you might see how this impoverished father might like the idea of selling his daughter, so to speak, but as to marriage to a far richer man who can provide for her in ways that he never could. In a way, this is like the setup of an arranged marriage sold for an impressive dowry that included a rich man's family. Well, as might well expect, such arranged situations don't always end up with such happy endings. And what are you to do then? Well, now we look on to verse 8. Let's see this. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right, though, to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. But just two things need to note here. First, if her master doesn't want her after all, for whatever reason it is, she's allowed to be redeemed. She can be joined to another man, but she has to be redeemed. There has to be a price paid. You understand, that's the implication with redemption. A price has to be paid to set you free. And so a price has to be paid back to her, like her dowry, or to him, so that she can be let go and joined to another man. The point is, a man who will provide for her, be that husband to meet her needs. We just want to highlight for a second, because there's such analogies to our own relationship with God. Like To be set free, you have to have a price paid. Redemption isn't free. It comes at an enormous price. So as it talks about in the Bible that in Christ we've been redeemed, you understand there was one price paid to set you free from sin and death, and it was the blood of Christ. It took the blood of the Son and all that His blood was worth, so to speak, that you would be set free from the judgment of God. You might enjoy the benefits of redemption, and it might seem free in that way, but someone has to pay it. And praise God, Christ paid it for us. 
Well, so she could be redeemed and joined to another man. Or here's another situation that unfolds. Verse 9, if he designates her for her son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. She was going to be redeemed so she could be provided for by another man. Or maybe he designates her for her son, and there he must still treat her as a daughter, as a daughter-in-law. What's the point with this? She's not just being brought in as a servant. She's being adopted into the family. She had all the rights and protections of one who was born in his house. He's not just taking her in to to have somebody vacuum. He's taking her on in all of her needs. This is that picture. Now, with that said, she could be what might be called a slave wife or a concubine wife. She would not then demand the same uh, standing as the free primary wife would. And so you might then expect another wife might come into the family and supplant her. Maybe another slave wife or maybe a free wife comes into the family. Now, before we get into all the implications of that, let me make a couple preliminary comments, necessary ones here. The Bible, despite what we're seeing here, does not condone or approve of polygamy, marrying more than one wife. How do we know this? Well, for example, officers in the church, elders and deacons, as we read on the New Testament, they must be men married to only each of them one woman. You must be a one-woman man. That's the design. And that's the design we saw from the very beginning. God made Adam and did not give her Eve and Barbara, but just Eve, because Eve was enough. And not to mention, as you go through the Bible and you see where rival wives are presented, you know, whether we got like Sarah with Hagar, or even Rebecca and Leah, or Solomon's 1,000 women, the Bible never presents that as a good situation. It almost always gets translated out. It goes badly when you go against God's initial design. So what does this mean? The Bible does not support polygamy. It does not condone it in that way, but it does tolerate it, it moderates it, and it regulates it. In this fallen world and in that ancient context, that was necessary. I think many analogies are there as you think about this art main topic about slavery. The Bible regulates this kind of slavery, this economic agreement, so to speak, but it does not condone it. It does not demand it. Such that, and we know this, because Paul will talk to slaves in the first century, and the first thing he's going to tell them, hey, you don't really have to worry about it. Here's what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 and 21. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called to Christ? He says, be not concerned about it. Don't worry about it. But then he adds this. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Take it. If you can be free, go. (laughs) Well, what's the point? Freedom is good. It's preferred. It's the ideal. Slavery is not what we're after. But in a world like this that's broken, that's sinful, sometimes in a, some form of this may be unavoidable. And Paul's point, that's okay. Don't worry about it. It doesn't make you any less human. doesn't make you any less of a Christian. doesn't make you any less loved by Christ. But it is true, going back to our text, there will be different standings for different people. That's true in our society, even though we don't technically have slavery. But the word comes in to regulate that and protect the vulnerable. And in this way, for the slave wife, she might not have the same rights as the free wife, 
But she has rights, and she needs to be protected nonetheless. So let's look at the final two verses here, verses 10 and 11 of Exodus 21. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without the payment of money. That is, if he doesn't provide for her in these ways, she's going to go out for free, and he's then lost gobs of money because she's gone out without her dowry, so to speak. And she has a right to go out if he will not commit to do what he's committed to do to provide for her. And this isn't just provide for her basic necessities when it says provide for her food, clothing, and her marital rights evident with marital rights, clothing, obvious, but even the word food there. That's not just the word like food, like bread. That would be the normal word translated food. In the Hebrew here, it's meat. This is the good stuff. Like You can't start to diminish even her, her food. She has to receive what the family members receive at the table. Because why? She's still part of the family. And again, you can't take away her marital rights. Why? Because that's her opportunity for children and the support for her life for a generation. So we capture here, just in the big picture, yes, she may be a slave wife, but she has protections. She has rights, and God is regulated and mandating that, so no one can take advantage of her. God's looking out for her, is the point. And he will ensure, by his law, she's provided for. So then, to make the jump, or the, the, the turn to us, this is God's call for us too. This is God's heart, to provide for the vulnerable, to protect them. And we find that very same concern in the New Testament, the commands that are given to Christians, though in a different context, not of that of slavery, but that of just quite practically providing for your family. And we talked about this with the Ten Commandments, didn't we? Honoring your father and your mother most likely will look like, quite practically this, providing for them financially. So in the first place, Paul gives instructions to the church at Ephesus through Timothy, their pastor, on how to handle, instructs them on how to handle the most needy and the most vulnerable around them, and that's older widows. And he gives them some parameters. He says to the church, don't take on every widow. Why not? Because he says this, 1 Timothy 5.4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some returns to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. What's his point? If you... If you're a grandmother and you've got kids and grandkids, they're supposed to care for you. It shouldn't be needlessly a burden on the church. Let's put it that way. In the financial realm is what we're talking about. Again, what's the underlying logic, though, for this? If the Lord has provided for you and he's equipped you, even financially and with physical provisions, how can you not provide for the needy that are closest to you, even your very own family? Such that Paul goes on to say, if you won't do that, you know what you're like? You have denied the faith, and you're worse than an unbeliever. Why? Because this is what we're, we have been granted grace and provision in the gospel, and we are rejecting that if we don't also provide for others, especially the most needy. But that's not only true in physical care, but it's true in spiritual care too. That there's a spiritual care we have for the needy, those closest to us, namely the household of faith. And again, to kind of sum it up, this is what the gospel's about. 
Christ took care of your needs. He took care of your debts, so you don't have to worry about you. And so because you don't have to worry about you, again, you can turn your nose up out of your navel, and you can look up and out and say, who's around here? What, what needs do they have? Christ has met mine. How can I help them? To get quite practical about it, here's how Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians 6, he's In Galatians, he's been dealing with freedom from bondage, namely to the law, and Christ has set you free, but he's set you free to serve. And here's what it looks like, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted, but bear one another's burdens, and not ironically, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why has Christ saved you? Why has he redeemed you? Why did he save you from sin? So you can stop focusing on you, your sin problems. Christ is taking care of those. He did all that. So now you can go help your brothers and sisters who are struggling, who are caught in sin. you got to help them. And to be clear, you might link arms and not know what to do. You may not know what to tell them. You may not have all the answers. I certainly don't. But what can we do? We can pray for them. We can point them to the one that does have the answers. We can search the scriptures with them. We can hold them accountable. We can encourage them. The point is, you can't just leave your fellow members to walk this Christian life alone. You've been set free to provide spiritual protection to those who need help. Bear one another's burdens, he says, and fulfill the law of Christ. And so, to start with, is that you? Are you helping your brothers and sisters walk after Christ? Are you engaged in church life? Or are you anonymous Andrew who leaves as quickly as he can after service or never attends any groups or anything else? It's not about attendance, but it's about engaging with the body. you got to know your brothers and sisters. Are you reaching out? Are you checking in? Are you hoping to help people walk with Christ? And if that's not you, if your response is, well, Rick, I was listening very closely to that verse from Galatians, and it said, for those who are spiritual, well, I'm just really struggling spiritually. I'm in no place to help anyone. Well, you know what? You might not be the the one with all the ready provision. You might be the spiritually destitute person. And you know what? That's good. But that means you got to do what? Hey, I need help. And that's what the brothers and sisters are for to help you, to walk with you. But you got to own that humbly to say, I don't have it together. And we're going to say, well, neither do we, but we know the one who does. And we know the one who has the answers. Because that's what the answers, but we have the one answer and it's our redeemer. So help us help you walk with him. Reach out, talk, open up to Christ. Because he already knows and he's ready to receive. Let me just call to mind, because we're really following after the example of our own Savior. And it comes together so well in this verse about his whole ministry in life. And it's this, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he do that? He gave his life as a ransom. That's the redemption price. He's done that so we can serve like him. Let's pray unto that end. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us a salvation that we could not earn on our own, that we could not acquire. You've given us that at the price of your Son, and for that we're thankful. Forgive us for our selfishness, our focus on ourselves, and 
really looking away from Christ. Help us to look after him, to know he set us free that we might serve. Equip us for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.